Hello, everyone. My name is Reese Lindmark, and you're listening to Gray Mirror, a podcast from MIT Media Lab's Digital Currency Initiative on technology, society, and ethics. And unlike something like Black Mirror, which just looks at the negative impacts of technology on society, we are Gray Mirror, so we look at the positive and negative impacts of technology on society. And please, if you have any feedback, reach out on Twitter. And if you like the show, give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. Uh, we really do appreciate it. Thanks. So in today's episode, I interview Kate Darling. She's a research specialist at the MIT Media Lab and an affiliate at the Harvard Berkman Klein Center. And we chat about a variety of things. I just want to highlight three. We chat a good amount about tech and law and their co-evolution, especially some of the balances to be aware of. We also chat about gender and privilege. And I especially like her point about how it's a system and how men can get hurt as well. And then finally, we chat about uh, how for her recently, she recently became a mother and that has been really helpful to force um, both a longer term view for her on the world and to kind of help her empathize with more people in the world. So with that, I hope you enjoy today's episode with Kate. Hello, everybody. You're listening to Gray Mirror. Kate, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to chat. Uh, and we're here in person in our new, my new office. Um, and so we're, it's a fun in-person interview, which is always good. Uh, so we're going to talk about two main things here. The first is how tech, inter- how tech and law like interact in society. And the second is about gender and privilege and intersectionality and power. Um, so let's start on the first piece here. And the first is... I know, Kate, you've done some... Well, I guess I guess before diving deeper into the law piece, could you just tell me how you understand our current kind of macro context and, like, the goals given our macro context? That's, that's a really big question. It's big. It's tough. That's it's a tough. macro question? It's, yeah. It's <laughs> tough, yeah. Oh, you mean my goals? I'm talking about, like, how do you see... When you think about the world in a big... In, like, a... A macro like the global context with whether it's Trump things or whether it's you know capitalism or how how do you kind of see all the different pieces of the world interacting mm. these days and how do you think we should move forward given the current state status quo oh my gosh if anyone knew the answer to how we should move forward <laughs> but I can tell you like from my perspective nice, nice. I feel like so my main interest is in how systems shape human behavior mm. and so I studied law, I did some law and economics, and now I do technology and technology ethics. Um, and I think what I've realized is that uh, Larry Lessig was very prescient. Um, he wrote the book, uh, what is it, Code is Law? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was his big book, um, where he talked about the four factors that can influence society and have a huge effect on society, which are laws, norms, markets, and architecture, I think, are the four. Um, and I've found that to be true. If you look at you know, how my interests have evolved over time, they look very different from each other. But actually, I'm really interested in you know, those four things in, and how they can shape human behavior. And so sometimes lawyers look at the world through the eyes of, oh, how can we regulate and change things that way? Technologists look at the world through, you know, code and how can we build things and and uh, shape things that way and and so my my favorite thing is to look through all these different lenses and figure out you know what does that mean and it's of course much more complicated to view the world that way there's probably even many many more lenses to view the world through so uh, I don't really know 
where, like what to focus on right now because I don't know, things have gotten really dark lately. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, not just in the US. Uh, so it's, it's a little bit, I feel like a lot of us are floundering and trying to figure out what is the best path forward. Is it politics? Is it, you know, building things to help? Is it, I, I don't know. <laughs> We're just all trying to figure out what to do. Um, and I don't know what the path is. I think the goal is a better world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> For who on what timeline? You yeah, know? and how do we define that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Hitler had a certain definition yeah. of what a better world is that I don't agree with. <laughs> Although he was an animal rights activist. Did you know oh, that? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I did not know that. Like He was a, like a vegetarian and like the that's Nazis passed comprehensive animal rights legislation. That's fascinating. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I think so. At a high level, I super agree with your Lessig's dot uh, framework, which is a great way for people to, before you do anything, you say, okay, the way that the world works is by, you know, code and norms and law and uh, markets and incentives. And so those four things are interacting in the world and how should, what is the state of each of those and how can we use those things to, to change going forward? And I also agree with you to say that these days, things feel, uh, yeah, intense slash dark. <laughs> Do you, what for you, I guess for me, I think they feel both intense slash dark uh, and like fragile. And I also think that in some ways we're more, things are more abundant than they've ever been. And we have more ability to change the system than we've ever had. And like, you know, if things have got like less people are in poverty now than they were less people less kids die before the age of five than used to like so how do you kind of balance those two perspectives or or do you mostly see the world in a pessimistic dark way <laughs> no you're right and you know steven pinker who gets criticized yeah, exactly. by many exactly. has exactly. this you know theory about how we're, we're always pessimistic but when you look at where we are if you look at the history of how um humans have evolved we're you know better and happier and like safer than we've ever been um which you know is a kind of a one-sided view but the, certainly there is something to that argument um i <laughs> you know i am i am just like very focused kind of on my lifetime and in particular the lifetime of my child i mm -hmm. just had a kid 15 yeah. months ago and so I think I'm maybe a little bit hyper-focused on the now and making things better now and seeing things that I'm not happy with right now mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. rather than looking at, oh, you know, we we eradicated polio. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> How does that affect my 15-month-old? You know, it's like, yeah, have, yeah. I think that for a lot of people, I feel like the kid, having kids has been a big a lot of like some of like the climate change groups that I'm part of, a big piece that they're thinking, either people who haven't had kids are like, oh man, should I even have kids? From a, a how much carbon do, is like, if you have more kids, is that good? And do I want to bring kids into this world, which is kind of scary? Or if you've already have kids, like, oh man, how is their, is life going to be good for them? You know, or what's that going to be like? And I don't want to get too intense about that, but um, I think that the kid, kids make people um, push this question a little bit, I guess. So so moving away from the macro kind of um, kind of framework perspective here, I want to chat about law specifically. And because for me, I am not a lawyer at any sense of the word, um, but obviously law can constrain how we do things in the world. So how do you kind of think, if you're thinking about it, it's like, 
there are those four lessig buckets and one of those buckets is law if you were to break law into sub buckets what would those buckets be (laughs) (laughs) oh gosh i don't know what the sub buckets would be there are certainly many sub buckets um i think when i think about the the influence that law has on the world it's oh it's i you know i have such mixed feelings about Mm -hmm. um regulation uh because if you look at the internet you know if if law hadn't been so far behind technology that like we could hardly catch up, then the internet wouldn't exist in the form that it does today. But at the same time, you know, now we have all these problems with like privacy law being like way behind, you know, current technology and, you know, people actually getting harmed as a result. So the law is such a, it's not enough to just create technology and regulate it afterwards because the whole architecture piece of it sets defaults um, and really, you know, sets things in in motion in a way that you can't stop or, you know, change with just regulation. But we find that if we regulate too early, um, you know, amazing technology doesn't doesn't come about. So, um, So a friend of mine, Ryan Kahlo, got screamed at rightfully so i believe but he got screamed at at a at an ai ethics conference for saying that we should wait to regulate facial recognition technology mm-hmm. and his reasoning was because he has seen so many times regulation reacting to a specific technology like that but then passing really bad regulation that's either too narrow or too broad and once it's passed you can't like bring up the issue again when then the gate recognition technology comes around because the legislators are you know fatigued from like having to deal with this issue and then you wind up just needing to deal with this shitty legislation that you had already passed and well he got he got criticized um because facial recognition technology does have some specific attributes and is disadvantaging specific communities right now and really harming them and and so there is a reason and he actually he took back his statement and and he like he listened and he he changed it he changed his mind on that which i thought was really um commendable but his point about needing to be careful about regulation is very very true i mean anyone who's dealt with policymakers i mean half of the laws we have are just based on you know either lobbyist or superstition mm-hmm. <laughs> nice there's, you have your choice of one of those two things <laughs> uh, I don't know yeah, I think I think you're correct in saying that one of the huge tensions here and honestly it, it, one of the huge tensions is should you like as you say the internet early internet folks were so excited that they were able and you chat about this with your recent um media lab talk with douglas rushkoff where it was like hey it's the early internet folks really didn't want the government in there you know and then they got permissionless innovation that was cool but then that enabled uh google amazon facebook all the aggregators and platforms in in that side of things so it's kind of like having this this balance of not too wide not too narrow not too soon not too late very difficult <laughs> do you think also another piece here which i think is interesting is someone like Lawrence lessig um you know was working on the you know intellectual property laws and trying to you know push things like the creative commons and whatever against the evil lobbyists of you know the big um you know record labels which yeah, yeah. um and so i think that <laughs> Uh, and then over time, like, he was like, 
I think I just need to work more on corruption and I need to work more on kind of how money changes politics. Do you think, you know, how do you think about working directly on like legal issues versus kind of abstracting one level and working on like the how money affects politics and law more generally? Well, I think like the, the progression from his progression from working on copyright legislation to working on money and government mm -hmm. makes so much sense because, mm -hmm. you know, he he worked on copyright issues for, I don't know, what, 10 years, 20 years? How, how long did he? A long time. <laughs> and he started a whole movement. Like, yeah. he had believers. I was one of his biggest fans. Yeah. I mean, still am. He's yeah. great. Yeah. And, um, you know, started all this, started Creative Commons, started all these, like, really, really powerful tools, and yet we got nowhere yeah. with copyright legislation. Yeah. Yeah. And... So he realized that the only way to really change things is going straight to their roots. Mm -hmm. I think it's actually what he says, going to the roots of the problem. Mm -hmm. And the root of the problem is government corruption in mm -hmm. this case and, and probably in a lot of other cases, mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, he's... I love him because he's bold enough to, you know, see the problem and, like, go for it. Whereas other academics are like, whoa, I need to stay in my lane and mm -hmm. do my thing and, like, work in my you know, my, my name in this field. And, you know, he's bold enough to do things like run for president yeah. and, like, get ridiculed by everyone, but in order to make a point. Mm -hmm. um, so, I don't know. It, we need people working on all fronts, though. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. And the I think what what would be helpful for better regulation is to have people from different disciplines working together, which is something that we're still very bad at. Like the world has started talking about how important interdisciplinarity is. But I can tell you from the world of academia, um, everyone is like, yeah, we need more interdisciplinarity, but there are no structures in place that really support that, <laughs> or very few. The Media Lab is, is a great place that does support it. There are some other institutions, but for the most part, to have a good career in academia, you can't be too interdisciplinary. And I think that is hugely harmful mm -hmm. to things like, you know, passing good legislation in a world where we have now AI and robotics seeping into all these different areas of people's lives. And the regulators know nothing about the technology. The technologists know nothing about, you know, human behavior or ethics mm -hmm. and... Everyone sees that there's a problem, but we haven't found a solution yet. Yep, yep. You're uh, you're definitely preaching to the choir, both to my listeners and to the another media lab. I, you know, like, oh yes, more interdisciplinary stuff. <laughs> uh, I also think going to the root of the problem is like. You could either think of it, yeah, as going to the root or, like, um, I often say it's, like, going to the, like, the paradigm level from, like, a Donella Mello systems perspective where it's, like, you, if you change the paradigm, then that can change how laws get implemented. It can change how, you know, incentives get structured or whatever. So that's the other hope. But it's so much more difficult to change those things that are even more abstract and more kind of ingrained within us. Um, so in any case, so let's, let's kind of transition over to chatting about, like, gender and privilege and those kinds of things in tech. Um, I think that the so so we were chatting after a recent uh, this this Douglas Rushkoff event where you um, you know had this talk with him about his recent book and we were just chatting about like essentially similar things we're chatting about today which is what should we do in the world um, <laughs> and uh, I think that one thing that is just always difficult for me to remind myself of as a rich white straight American male um, is how one's identity affects those kinds of decisions. So could you tell me a little bit more about how, when you think about like doing good things in the world, how your own identity affects uh, the decisions that you make? 
Yeah, so I, I didn't think much about this before the election, but after the election happened, um, I had kind of a crisis, a personal crisis. I was like, what am I doing with my life? You know, I originally went to law school because I wanted to make a difference in the world. And am I doing that now? I work on, you know, human-robot interaction because I'm really passionate about it. So I have like a really fun life and I love it. But am I, is that really important given the political climate and all of these fires that I see everywhere that, you know, I want to be helpful in putting out, but I don't know how. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's a law professor and I told her, hey, I'm thinking of leaving academia and like going to work for a nonprofit Mm -hmm. or, or doing something because I have to do something. And she was like, but you are doing something. And the problem is that women always do this. They leave the tech field, they leave academia, they leave industry, and they go and work for a nonprofit where they earn nothing, where they're, you know, volunteers. And we need we need people doing that, of course, but we also need women to stay where they are and to represent and to try to change from within. And I know that the whole change from within thing is a little bit problematic and a lot of people tell themselves that they're changing from within and I'm still trying to figure out whether I'm doing the right thing by staying on my current career path and I've been trying to figure out how to, you know, work on some of the issues that I see in in different ways from the position that I'm in and I'm I'm still trying to figure that out. But I ultimately decided, okay, you know, maybe she has a point that I can do more from the stronger position that I'm in right now than I could if I just left and started with something else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm, I'm hearing kind of two different things there. One is the ability, a classic question is, should one change by like either influencing the influencers or like working inside the given system? Or should they work by like trying to exit that system and trying to you know uh, to, to, to leave it and to influence and to work with um, to, to not work with like the influencers or whatever? That's one side. And then the other piece is just like yeah, how one's how your identity plays into that. Um, I guess, but you didn't talk too much about that. Do you see your own? Do you see like yourself as like oh, I need to be a role model for women in tech? Is that like a way that you like identify or? It's a new so I. <laughs> I, I think I've had trouble coming to terms with the fact that I actually am like somewhat visible now because I still feel like an insignificant person and have imposter syndrome like everyone else in Cambridge. But um, I'm I'm starting to see that you know no matter no matter where you are actually there are always people that you can elevate or try to be a role model for or try to help in some way and. Um, so I, I was just uh, I was just at an event which was four days of speakers and I was the only woman mm. and what yeah yeah <laughs> I know <laughs> that's crazy sometimes you'd be like oh okay this panel it's got five dudes on it like <laughs> what's going on here but like a four day event with <laughs> yeah I mean that's <laughs> sounds a, like a crypto I don't know if they changed it last minute because I wasn't there for the four days but yeah. when I saw the lineup I was the only woman yeah, oof. um and so I do I have started being more conscious of the fact that I can represent and maybe that does make somewhat of a difference. Mm -hmm. I also um, am trying to, you know, wear whatever I want on stage Mm -hmm. and um, just, you know, be 
to be an imperfect person who is passionate mm-hmm. and you know not afraid to be up there with mm-hmm. all the dudes mm-hmm. um hope I, I i don't know i know it would have helped me like when i was a kid i was really into science fiction and i really liked programming mm-hmm. and it never occurred to me to go into stem mm-hmm. it just never occurred to me because i didn't have any role models yeah yeah yeah, yeah i think that there are oh this stuff is when i watch so, so, so we are all socialized into our various contexts, and I, as a dude, was socialized into my context. And it was, I mean, when I was in high school, I would use, like, gay as a derogatory term. You know, I'd like, oh, that gay. And then that, I remember being like, oh, God, like, in college, I finally got woke to that. I was like, oh, Jesus. Um, and the another version of that that I've, a good way that i found to, to, like, remind myself of how I was socialized is actually by watching some old movies. So I was watching, um, uh, the one with Robin Williams and Matt Damon and people, uh, it's, it's a nice movie in Boston. Oh, um, Good Will Hunting? Good Will Hunting. Good Will Hunting, which in theory is a beautiful movie and it's about therapy and we all love therapy. And, um, but I was watching it and, like, the woman character in it was just... Like she was essentially just like a like a random sexualized person in the corner, and it was like, in the, what women see when they watch that movie versus what I see, which is like, you can do anything, and you're gonna go to MIT, and you're gonna do all. It's like totally different, and I I was just disgusted essentially. Um, and 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 so I think for me personally, that's been a good reminder of watching the old movies as a way to think about the ways that different people were socialized in, in, in childhood. Do you think so? Something that you're chatting about is how you can be a like a good role model in various ways. And something that I think about is how can I be I don't want to call it like an anti-role model, but like how how should a dude like me or a rich person like me or a white dude like me or whatever actively push for more space for non-people like me? You know, like de- decentralized power oh, away sure, from myself. Yeah. How well, I but that? like that, that applies to all of us. Like, mm-hmm. I think that, you know, I, as a, you know, privileged white woman of means, mm-hmm. can also be thinking about, you know, how can I cede power or listen to, you know, women of color or, you know, people who, who you know, I have been socialized to, mm-hmm. you know, treat a certain way or think about in a certain way. So I think we're all constantly on that learning journey. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, you know, I think... One of the important things is to understand that um, the the gender roles that we've you know grown up kind of internalizing are a disservice to men as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. not just about men, you know, having all the power and giving some to women. I mean, <laughs> to some extent, that that's true because we tend to value you know male work, for example. But mm-hmm. but it also you know puts men in a, in a bucket and says, look, you, you're supposed to do these things and you're supposed to be this way. And, you know, having a son now myself, I'm Mm -hmm. thinking a lot about how can I teach him that, you know, other things are are cool too when society is telling him the opposite. Mm -hmm. And I think we're getting better, but we're not, not nearly there yet. Um, but yeah, thinking, I think it's good for all of us to think about what's my privilege and, Who's less privileged, and how can I listen to what they need and make space for them, and um, yeah, elevate them in some way? Yeah, I think, and 
I definitely agree with the 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 listening and the elevation piece and the and, and that side. And I super agree with the reminding oneself that it's it's a disservice. It's a system, and that in yeah. that in that system, it's like, I mean, my like kind of funny example of this is. Um, I've probably had, it was, I guess it was a couple years ago before a wedding that I went to, I was with a bunch of my female friends and we all got, um, pedicures before a wedding and it was so nice. It was like pedicures should be for everybody, you know? Um, and I believe that and I think that they're incredible. And I think that those, that is a small kind of stupid, funny example of this, but there are many ways in which men are not allowed to or are are pushed into various boxes or not allowed to express their femininity or their their, those kinds of things uh and so reminding oneself that those are uh yeah that that's a two-way system and that they're negatives for you you is i think well there was there was this new york times piece i think it was new york times years ago about you know how um a lot of jobs are being lost to you know automation globalization and um there are a lot of you know men who are out of work uh in america well the thing is there are jobs there are jobs for instance in the healthcare sector um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where jobs are skyrocketing mm-hmm. but and some of these jobs don't require you know a lot of education and you could retrain people to do them but they're traditionally seen as women's work mm-hmm. and so they're First of all, not valued. They don't pay as much, and but also the men who don't have jobs don't see themselves doing that type of work because mm-hmm. we as a society don't value it. Mm-hmm. And so, it's really like doing everyone a disservice mm-hmm. um, to to you know not value work that is traditionally seen as female. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so now we have you know not enough jobs in this area and too many jobs in this area and it's, it's just a nightmare and the men who are like oh i could get a job but i don't want that job because it's more of a female it's more of a feminine yeah. job or whatever it's like that's yeah yeah that that's rough um do you think so maybe to kind of conclude i think this is a question honestly for that works with both is uh, a thing that I'm constantly battling with is what I would call like coherent pluralism, which is the idea that so at, at the at the top we were talking about the macro situation. There's all the fires, and we can take multiple different perspectives. And it's like, oh boy, which perspective should we take at any given time? It's hard to like actually have a coherent vision given um, all the craziness that's going down. And then similarly, I think with identity, this can also be an issue where it's like, okay, I am not privileged on all these aspects or I, or rather I am privileged on all these aspects. There might be some aspects that I'm not privileged on. How should I, um, you know, create coherence around, you know, the kinds of identities that I should, you know, up prioritize or whatever. So the macro question is how do you think about creating coherence given lots of options? Oh, such a good question. I mean, and, and I don't, I'm not, you know, a scholar in this area. I know nothing about this. You know, I should, I, I'm trying to educate myself more as I go, but I could tell you that just for me personally, I feel like the experience of becoming a mother has actually really helped me because it has changed so much in my life. And I also went through some postpartum depression, mm-hmm. which it just made me understand that there are people's life experiences that I don't understand, mm-hmm. can't understand, mm-hmm. and thus can't be judgy about. Mm-hmm. Like, I need to mm-hmm. listen to people mm-hmm. and need to mm-hmm. try and be more empathic mm-hmm. and not make assumptions about other people's experiences. And that's helped me. So, you know, 
I I started on Instagram. I started following um, more people who are in the space of criticizing white feminism, mm-hmm. for example, and um, you know, just following a bunch of people <laughs> who who you know, I think I can learn a lot from and. But even just, I'm, I'm noticing more things myself, like walking around Boston in the winter with a stroller. Mm-hmm. You realize that people don't shovel in front mm-hmm. of their houses mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. way that they should. Mm-hmm. And you realize, holy shit, if I were in a wheelchair, this mm-hmm. would be, I wouldn't be able to live in this city. Mm-hmm. Like how, and so just trying to, trying to, you know, be empathic mm-hmm. and just be aware that there are other people out there with different experiences mm-hmm. just I think, helps me yeah yeah I, I think I, I I super agree with that and I think that there's a and as you say something like being a mother um, and then experiencing some of the post mother depression or whatever you call it the um, that is something where you're like, wow, this is categorically different than anything I've ever. <laughs> it's a very clear zero to one kind of thing of like, not mother, mother now, you mm-hmm. know, um, and all those the, the differences in your life. And then from that, you say, wow, everybody else in the world is a totally different person. You want to, um, you can't, it's very difficult to judge them before you try to just understand them first, and then you can accept them, and then you can kind of work with them at that point or whatever, and, and to try to see their perspective there. I think I like that perspective of empathy, but I would I want to push a little bit on it and say, so let's say I'm doing that and now I'm empathizing more with lots and lots of different people. Um, how then do I create, you know, coherence given that I'm trying to be so multi-perspective all the time? Yeah, and there I don't have a good answer to that. If you have an answer, I, I mean, I'm like, <laughs> I don't. I I, I I I do I have a good answer to that? How does one create coherence? Um. Hmm. I don't know. I think that my answer might be connected to uh, just connecting in with your... I guess here's my answer. My answer would be feeling happy to commit to things for given periods of time and then later readjusting. So it's like a thing where you say, hey, I'm going to empathize with this set of people and then given all that, I'm going to try to take some actions in my life. And then, and I know that I didn't get all the perspectives, right into all my good things, but in three months, I'm going to work really hard for three months or whatever. And then three months later, I will come up out of my rabbit hole and say, okay, where am I at now? And then re, re-pluralize or re-empathize and then um, choose. So I think of it as kind of like a through time coherence, then uh, pluralism dynamic. I, I like that. I like that. It's. I think a lot of it is being okay with not being able to be coherent because you're just not you're not you can I remember being in college and taking all these like animal philosophy classes (laughs) and being like vegetarianism and veganism are you know the right path but they're not completely philosophically consistent so like how can I I can't commit to them because they're not like they fray at the edges if you if you like drill down philosophically and and it took me a while to realize no wait like you can still try to do something even if you're not doing a perfect job of being you know morally consistent yeah totally totally and that's like i like the idea of being a flexitarian or a reducitarian it's like oh. eh, generally eat less meat you know and then you don't need to be perfect you know it's not a perfect thing so um okay so with that thank you for your time today as a note for our listeners um a uh kate talks about this stuff but also is actually very uh an expert one of the leading experts in robot 
ethics or you know how human human robot interaction um so check her out for those things as well and i guess kate is there anything should how can people find you on twitter my Twitter handle is grok, G-R-O-K underscore. Nice, nice, nice. Um, that's an interesting handle. <laughs> yes, there's a long story behind that okay, underscore. But... We won't go too deep now. Um, so thank you again for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Sweet. Goodbye.